think he was wrong. I hope he's listening tonight because I can tell him when he's wrong. Uh, but he mentioned that his cynical class was in Ezra this week. And they may well have been, but normally that's not the case. Normally we're all on the same uh, lesson. That's certainly geared different for different ages, but it's normally But we're going to be in Ezra tonight. Uh, and we were there last week in Sunday school. And again, as I mentioned this morning, Ezra and Nehemiah, even though Nehemiah came on the scene about 13 years later, uh, a lot of what took place in Ezra and Nehemiah sort of overlap each other as God used these men in the restoring of the city, the temple, as well as the walls around the city. Ezra chapter 3, look at verse 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, notice what happened, they wept with a loud voice at one group and many shouted aloud for joy. Father, bless your reading of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Around 530 B.C. is the year. The place of the story is Jerusalem. And some of the Jews have just returned from years of captivity in Babylon. For those who were called ancient in verse 12, some of them had been there for 70 years. Most had been there for at least 50 years. And as we read this morning in Nehemiah, the reason they were there, and Nehemiah admitted it, was because of the rebellion against God. And this captivity was a judgment upon them for that rebellion. And by the way, this wasn't one generation. It was one generation after another. God had given them opportunity after opportunity uh, to make things right, and they refused to listen to the call of God. By the time we get to Ezra chapter 3, the first group of captives have now returned back to the land. Now, as I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, many of them had never been to Jerusalem before the temple and the city were destroyed. Fifty years have gone by since that happened. Seventy years since the first group came into captivity. And so no matter what they may have heard from their parents and grandparents about the nation and what it looked like, when they got there, the mental picture they had of what it was once in that glory has now changed. No longer are the Jews the prominent people of Israel. Most of the land is in the hands of the enemies. The city itself, as we read this morning from Nehemiah, is in ruins. The walls were torn down. Buildings that once were there at least were looted and many were burned to the ground. But the saddest thing of all, the temple was gone. The one that Solomon built 500 years earlier, and you have to know the Jews thought it would last forever. And it could have if they'd obeyed God. So it's gone. 
And again, most of those, well, all of those probably, except maybe a few of the older ones, had never seen the glory of the first temple. And even those who had seen it, if they saw what was going on now, it appeared only to be an imagination. Did it really look as good as we thought it did? The gold and silver are gone. Everything of value is gone. The Babylonians made sure of that. The altar is gone. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. All the utensils that were used in worship, they're gone. And we can only imagine the rubble left behind. And how many know after years of neglect, what happens to the land itself? Bushes and briars and weeds and thorns. But it's interesting, they come back, the first wave does. Zerubbabel was instrumental in rebuilding the altar and the foundation for the temple. Ezra's main concern was to teach them the law. But they get back, and in spite of the condition of the land, of the city, They decided to get to work. They were determined to rebuild the city, the temple, and the walls. And there are actually, actually about three phases, and we'll talk about them a little bit tonight. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar. And that's in the first six verses of Ezra 3. The second thing they do, once the altar is built, they lay the foundation for the temple. And then once that's finished, they take a break. And they take time to celebrate. Can I ask you a question tonight? When's the last time you celebrate the Lord Jesus? What he's done for you in your life. So in verses 10 and 11, the foundation is laid, and a celebration takes place. But in our text tonight, in verses 12 and 13, in the middle of all the cheering and singing, something sort of odd happens. We have the younger people who had never seen the first temple with their eyes. They were excited. They were happy. They danced and they cheered. But the old folks, all they could do is weep. So the Bible says in that time of celebration, there was shouts of joy intermingled with weeping. And the Bible says it was so loud, both of the sides were it was hard to tell them apart. And I think we can understand a little bit of the reason for the sadness. For those who remembered Solomon Temple, as they saw the size of this foundation, they realized there's no comparison. There is no comparison. 
to the old. But the younger folks who had never seen the temple with their own eyes, they had no memories of the glory of Solomon's temple. They cheered. Because in their eyes, after living in a pagan land for those many years, now we're going to see a new temple. Let me interject here tonight for a moment. How many know, just as God was involved with the building of Solomon's temple, he's also involved with the building of this temple. Just as the glory of Solomon's temple met with God's approval, this temple would, would, would meet his approval as well. Folks, understand something. When God is in it, everything's okay. It is okay. But again, for the older people, there was absolutely no comparison. And so they were disappointed. Now think about this for a moment. When they realized and heard the news, we're going to rebuild the temple. So in their mind, what did they think, what did they think about? Solomon's temple. Is that true? Solomon's, that's what they expected. Now, now they know Solomon's not there. But I think they certainly expected it to be a whole lot more like Solomon's temple than what it came out to be. And so they were disappointed. They were disappointed. Father, help me to never be disappointed with what you do. And you know why they were disappointed? Their expectations were wrong. Now think about that. By the way, when Jesus came into our world, John says he came to his own world and his own people, the Jews, would not receive him. Why were they disappointed? He wasn't what they expected. Wrong expectations. Now, I mentioned this last week, and you know it's true. I don't care who you are. If you haven't, you will experience disappointment sooner or later. And probably sooner than later. Sometimes there's other people that disappoint us. But how many times have we disappointed ourselves? So disappointment is real. And there's absolutely no doubt about it, especially since the fall of man in, in Genesis 3, we live in a world of disappointment. A world of disappointment. And if we don't begin to wrap our minds around that truth, you'll be more unhappy tomorrow than you are today. And the problem is, for whatever reason, we assume, and I don't know why, that we have earned certain things out of this life. Do you remember what Job said about that principle? I came into this world with what? With nothing. And I'm going to leave with what? With nothing. 
What a principle. So we assume somehow we've earned whatever it is in life. And whenever whatever it is we think we've earned doesn't come to fruition, we're disappointed. Psychologists tell us that there is a very strong correlation between good mental health and having, and hear me, assumptions that match reality. Isn't that true? But they also tell us there's a high correlation between misplaced assumptions and a variety of emotional problems, one of which is depression. I need to be sitting down there tonight and listening to myself. Because every once in a while I forget how good God's been to me. And I don't know what my expectations are. I had to kind of chuckle at Jesse this past week. They had gone on vacation and they stopped by Gettysburg. And uh, and by the way, I would recommend if you had never been, go. It's worth the trip. But nonetheless, his first words said, Dad, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> but it was sure overwhelming. And, and so, you know, sometimes we always, we all have what we expectation, don't we? In our mind, what it's going to be like. Now, he wasn't disappointed, Jesse wasn't disappointed with that. But the bottom line is, we are disappointed when things don't go the way we thought they were going to go. And we are disappointed because of that. And so, whenever our expectations are wrong, it leads to disappointment. If we don't deal with disappointment, it can lead to despair. I'm always amazed... At the Apostle Paul. You know his story. Well, look what he went through. And even as he sort of signs off in the last chapter of 2 Timothy, you don't hear despair in his voice. You know what he says? I fought a good fight and I finished my course. <laughs> because I believe Paul did not have, for the most part, wrong expectations. So why the older folks in Ezra's day, why were they disappointed? The truth is because they can remember the way things used to be. How many know you can't live in the past? They were living in the past with all his glory. And because they were living in the past, they were not able to deal with the present reality. And, and I can understand that. And for whatever reason, I see it happening in church all the time. People will say, it used to be better. Used to be is no more. We need to live 
in the here and now. And so I can understand their disappointment, but they need to move on. They need to realize, you know what, that was in, but God is still working now. He's still working now. And so I think if we're going to overcome that sort of disappointment, I think we see several things here in Ezra chapter 3 that were necessary. The first thing they did, we'll just touch on it a little bit. We talked about it last week. They rebuilt the altar. There was a new dedication. Think about that. How many know, for them to build that altar, they had to dedicate themselves to that. But they first had to dedicate themselves to the Lord. We are going to do this. And they did that. They built the altar first so they could offer sacrifices to God. And they realized how important it was for them to come back to the Mosaic Covenant. And these will be the first sacrifices made there on that altar in over 50 years. Ezra tells us in verse 4, they offered offering for the feast of the tabernacles. Verse 5 and 6, they offered other offerings as well. But then the last part of verse 6, there's an important note there. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Kind of interesting, I think. They went to work on building that altar even before they started rebuilding the temple. And there's a reason. Folks, worship must always come First, through the years I have fallen in love with the book of Job. And every year when I read my Bible through, I can't wait to get there. And I hate it when it comes to the end. But something caught my attention some years ago in chapter 1. After Job lost his wealth, his ten children, the Bible says he fell down and he worshipped. So not only does worship have to be the first word, it's got to be the last word. Worship is so important. The rubble was there because of their past disobedience. And now they said in our hearts, the first thing we've got to do is get right with God. We've got to make it right with God. The fact of the matter is they needed a fresh start. And the truth of the matter is there are times when we all do. 
We need a fresh start because of our own sin. Sometimes because of circumstances that have brought us down, we need a fresh start. When those days come where somehow the enemy has convinced us there's no hope, we need a fresh start. Now for you and I, I mentioned this last week in closing, our fresh start is the 1 John 1-9 principle. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. What a promise. And the great news is <clears throat> when we need that fresh start, if we will run to Jesus, not run away from him, run to Jesus, no matter how great our sin might be, he will abundantly pardon. Micah chapter 7 verse 18. Notice the question. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. Amen. He delights in mercy. So how many know when you need a fresh start, God wants to give it to you? Run to Jesus. So they did, the first thing they did, there's a new dedication, they rebuilt the altar. Second of all, there's a new obedience. They relayed the foundation. So the first thing they do, by building that altar, they reestablish their relation with God. But they don't stop there. They move on to build the foundation. Now, by the way, it's been a lot of years in remodeling and a lot of remodeling before you can put the new in. You're going to do what? Tear out the old. Get rid of the old. Now, there wasn't an old building there necessarily, but there was rubble there. Had to be moved. Piles of rocks and stones. Weeds had grown in. Bushes had grown in. Among all the debris. Some years ago, I was my dad and I were cutting firewood to use to heat our house. We had furnaces, but... When you're young and dumb, you do dumb things sometimes. And one thing about cutting firewood, you get warm about four times. When you cut it, when you load it into the truck, when you unload it, when you split it, you get warm again. And you get warm carrying it in the house and warm when it's in the, in the, furnace, in the stove burning. But that year, this particular farmer said, don't worry about the brush, I mean the limbs. Just cut your tree, leave them where they are. And it was wintertime. And so, you know, that saved us a lot of work, and that's what the farmer told us to do, and we left it there. Well, about June comes along, it's hot. Man, it's hot. 
Well, the farmer calls my dad says, I've changed my mind. I want you guys to remove the brush. But the problem was it wasn't you guys, it was me. And I go out there, and in that few months' time, but probably two months, maybe three at the most, weeds had grown up in that brush. And it was hard to pull it out of there. Now, I did it. But can you imagine, even in the midst of that rubble, trying to take it out from the brush and the weeds and the brambles that had grown up in it? It was a difficult task. Everything had been torn down, everything burned, and they also had to deal with the wild growth. Look at verse 7 and 8, Ezra 3. And they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat or food and drink and oil unto them of Zidon. To them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. They had a plan. And there's two important facts here tonight. Number one is they followed the instructions of the Lord. My friend, if we're ever going to please God in this life, we've got to follow his word. What are God's principles? What are God's precepts? What are God's commandments? We are expected to follow them. In chapter 3 of Ezra, in verse 2, and then also verse 4, look what it says. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak. And his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and his brethren, and Billah, the altar of God of Israel, notice this, to offer burnt offerings thereon, now notice this, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, they kept also the feast of the tabernacles. Notice this, as it is written. And offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as a duty of every day required. So they followed God's instructions. Now keep in mind, when they rebuilt, they did it according to the law. They followed the details of what God had told Moses to do. Now remember, Moses was instrumental in having the tabernacle built, but the plan and the details came from God. And God was very plain to Moses. He said, Moses, make sure you follow every detail I give you. Follow it to the sea. Now I think that's kind of important because it's been a thousand years have gone by since God has spoken to Moses 
on Mount Sinai. Empires have come. Empires have gone. Israel had gone through the conquest. They conquered the promised land. They lived and through the period of the judges. They lived during the period of three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon. And then they lived and endured a period of time of a divided nation. And finally they lived in a time of total humiliation and captivity to the nation of Babylon. So now it's time to start over. It's time for a fresh start. What do you do? What do you do? We do what they did. Go back to the basics. Go back to the drawing board. Go back, read the instructions. What does God say? How does God tell us to do it? And by the way, how many have learned the the hard way, if you don't read the instruction, man, you sure can't miss up. So, in that fresh start, go back to the instruction manual. How does God say we need to do it? Now, keep in mind, these folks knew why they were in captivity. Now they're back home, and their mindset says, we don't want to make the same mistake. We want to know what God says. So, first of all, they build according to God's instruction. The second thing they did, they resisted opposition. Look in verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the ways, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We read in Nehemiah this morning of several men who were named, three in particular, who didn't like Nehemiah coming back. They didn't like it when Ezra and Zerubbabel and Jeshua came as well, 13 years earlier than Nehemiah. And they resisted them. But the truth of the matter is, they were determined, the Jews were. And even though the enemy was all around them, they still relayed the foundation. The enemy went so far, the Bible says they had, they hired counselors against them. They tried anything they could to frustrate them, to get them to give up. Now, by the way, if you know the story of Ezra, they will succeed for a period of time. But how many know tonight, it takes courage to stand against a hostile world? How many know we're at that point in our history here in America? Amen. Marvin was sharing, Marvin was sharing with me that the church this morning, I think, 
Uh, one state has banned Bibles in grade school. Um, and yet they can teach. How can I put it nicely? Gender things in school that don't belong there. They can teach the critical race theory. And folks, you understand, there's going to come a time, and we're there now. If we stand biblically, we're going to stand against the world. We are going to be opposed. And my friend, that requires courage to stand against a hostile world. So my question I have to ask myself, when the enemy lines up against me, what am I going to do then? How will I respond? Folks, the only thing we can do is put our faith ahead of our fears. We read at the end of chapter 2 of Nehemiah this morning how those three men came up and asked the Jews, Nehemiah in particular, what do you think you're doing? And Nehemiah said this, we will rebuild this wall. Oppose us all you want. We will rebuild. So in spite of all the rubble, in spite of all the opposition, in spite of everything that's happened in the past, the people of God said, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to band together and we're going to get it done. The Bible says they raised money to buy some new logs. They organized the carpenters and the mason, gave them money. Got rid of the bushes, the weeds, the junk. And I can only imagine, little by little, Day by day, week by week, they worked to clear out 50 years of neglect. They had a mind to work. We come from a large family, Pam does as well. And uh, whenever we have any kind of family dinner, when, uh, when everything is done, it, man, it looks like a mess. There are dishes everywhere, leftover food. And um, one thing that I am not is a good organizer when things are overwhelming. Pam is. And the odd thing is, my sisters know that. Now, they pitch in. But they want her to organize because they know if she'll organize it, they can get it done. And I think about these Jews. 
And certainly they were disappointed. Some of them were. Some were excited. And as they looked the situation over, the task, not only did it appear daunting, it was daunting. Almost insurmountable. So what do you do? What do you do in a situation like that? You do what you know is right. Don't miss that. You do what you know is right. And they couldn't, and we cannot, allow our disappointment to keep us from doing what we know we have to do. Do what you know is right. So if you find yourself not able to keep the big promises, start by keeping the little promises and build from there. If you can't begin with a big plan, follow the small plan and build from there. And if you can't see ten steps into the future, just take one step at a time. One step at a time. And we have to begin by obeying God in the small things of life. Do what we know is right. Do what we know needs to be done. And whatever we do, Let's do it for the glory of God. And that's exactly what they did. A new dedication. They rebuilt the altar. A new obedience. They relayed the foundation. And the third thing, a new priority. They resolved to praise the Lord. Amen. Verse 10 and 11, as a three. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, to praise the Lord. Notice this, after the orders of David, king of Israel, and they sang together by course, in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout. And when, when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now think about that. Ezra doesn't tell us about the actual process. Doesn't tell us how long it took to lay the foundation necessarily. And we don't know for sure why he omits that. But I think it could have been because their focus was on the results. We want to get this foundation relayed. Because the community... Braved the rugged conditions, and they came together to finish the work. 
Now keep in mind, Cyrus gave out the edict. You can go home. And they were following certainly that command. But most important, they were following the command of their God. He's the one they were in covenant with. And so the foundation as it's being laid, the people followed the traditions of their forefathers. And especially when they were had been right with God. They weren't always, there were periods of time they were right with God. And the priests and the Levites led the dedication service for the foundation. And they did what was, what was prescribed by David years earlier. Now I won't take time to read the verses and I'm doing it from memory. But when they brought the Ark of the Covenant back in, and when Solomon built the temple, they had the singers and the musicians gather in three sections around the area. One section would begin to play, the second section would kick in later, and the third section. And in sync, they gave praise to God. So now in Ezra, the priests blow the trumpets. The sons of Asaph played the cymbals. Just like it was in Solomon's day. The priests and the Levites sang. And they sang, He is good. He's good. His love to Israel endures forever. They don't miss this, folks. They repeat it over and over again. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. What were they doing? What were they doing? They realized... And they acknowledge that God has now again established a loving protection over the nation of Israel. And they were giving God praise for it. Now think about this. Once the foundation was laid, the people and their leaders stopped. And they gave thanks to God. Public praise, united praise, intense praise, emotional praise, and all of the praise was God-centered. Now remember, when they sang, they made a declaration. They said, God is good. Not what? Not us. God is good. They gave God all the glory. They gave God all the credit. I have built probably 
10 or 12 homes over the years from the ground up, from under the ground up. I've lost track of room additions that we've done. But I've never stopped at the foundation to celebrate. To me, you celebrated when you drove that last nail and that customer handed you a check. But these Jews, they stop. They stop. They didn't wait until the building was finished to give God praise. Now, by the way, certainly this was a, an important goal. It was very significant. But you have to know, there's a lot of work to be done yet. In fact, some years would go by before the temple is completely finished. So this is only the first step, the very beginning of it. But they stopped, and they stopped to give thanks to God. Glory to His name. What a lesson that is for us. And here's what we're reminded of. We have to remember, praise is always a choice, not a feeling. We have to choose to praise the Lord. And by the way, you don't have to wait. In fact, you're not supposed to wait till you feel like it to praise the Lord. He deserves our praise all the time. So even when you don't feel like praising the Lord, it doesn't matter. Praise Him anyway. Praise is not about our feelings. Praise is a choice we make no matter how we feel. So don't wait till the victory is won to praise Him. Praise Him before the battle begins. Praise Him in the middle of the conflict. And praise Him even when things appear to be going against us. Do what they did. Praise Him for a good beginning. And by the way, if we will praise God in the process, that will put us in the right perspective, in the right place, to work with joy, no matter what the day may bring. Praise ye the Lord. And I want to tell you something, folks. If we can learn to praise God, even when things are not going well, it will be a tremendous asset to our spiritual life. It really, really will. So in the midst of the devastation of Jerusalem, with only the foundation finished, still rubble all around, the countryside controlled by their enemies, The people didn't say, woe is me. They said, God is good. That's true faith. How many know it's easy to praise God when the sun is shining? Easy to praise God when all the bills (coughs) are paid. 
Easy to praise God when your marriage is strong, your kids are doing well, when the future looks bright. It's quite another matter to praise God when things are far from perfect. And I think it's a great milestone in our lives. When the day comes, we can look at our life and we can say, my present circumstances are not exactly what I wish they were, but God is still good to me. Let's stand together. God is still good to me. Aren't you glad for God's goodness? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful tonight for who you are. We're thankful, Lord, that you offer us a fresh start. It requires a new dedication. It requires new obedience. But, Lord, the effort is worth it all. Father, help us to live our lives every day, remembering, Lord, that no matter what comes our way, our God is still good. Father, draw us each one nearer to you today than we were yesterday. And may your light shine through our lives. And we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed. Hope to see you Wednesday. If I don't, have a great week.